0: Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm Joe Iping, and on today's episode,
1: we're presenting a webinar about how to construct game boards on the Logic Games section. Seven Sage tutor Raphael discusses ways to build boards that will let you boost your accuracy and finish with time to spare. Then he and Seven Sage tutor Scott take questions from the audience. Good evening, my name is Scott Milam and I'm the manager of the Seven Sage tutoring program. Tonight, I'm joined by Rafael Pillier. Rafael is one of our founding tutors and has developed a well-deserved reputation in our program for his expertise teaching logic games. This evening, he was here to discuss the strategies and techniques he uses to help his students master the logic game section. So without further ado, Rafael, take it away.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much, Scott. Good to see everybody. I hope everyone's having a good evening or I guess daytime in a different time zone. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking games, building better boards. So momentarily, I'm going to share my screen. We're going to run through some brief principles that I think are pretty helpful for, for logic games. And Scott, I invite you to definitely interject. I know you have a lot of thoughts on logic games, a lot of thoughts on all things LSAT, especially logic games. And then after that, We'll demo a game, and then we'll try to leave a reasonable amount of time for Q&A, and we'll try to get to as many questions as we can. Scott and I both talk kind of quickly, so we'll probably be able to answer a bunch, but we'll we'll have to see. Okay, I'm going to share my screen, and we'll get started. Can everyone see my board? Or my screen, I should say. Good. So... Just a brief itinerary for what we're going to do today. We're going to start by talking about some principles for board construction. Basically things that you ought to think about when building boards. But I'm really going to talk primarily today about board construction because the secret of logic games really is that it comes from the board that when you have a good board, it sets you up for success. Then we'll talk really step-by-step, what's the recipe for success in games? What's the way that you ought to navigate your way through a game in a way that is replicable and lets you build consistent strategies? Then we'll, of course, talk about splitting, which, in my opinion, is sort of the beating heart of board construction. Scott, I'm curious if you agree, but I would say 90% of games, the 10% being largely miscellaneous games, 90% have some split, whether it's one rule or several, that there is some split that is good and can help you push out inferences curious if you
1: agree no i absolutely would agree with that so in in general I'm sure you'll get into this further, but when in doubt, there's probably, it, it's almost always worthwhile to split your board into at least two boards, and of course you can go overboard with that. I used to have a bad problem of splitting to like six or eight or some other nonsense, but at the very least, a, a two board split often will help you with easy games potentially get through the entire the entirety of the questions without actually having to draw out any additional boards, which is really kind of key to you being able to tackle those easy games very quickly. Agreed. Yeah.
2: And then we'll talk about getting faster on the diagram a bit. We'll talk briefly briefly. briefly about the questions. That's not the focus today. But then the lion's share of this is going to be us actually, no kidding, doing a game together. Since a lot of the time you can understand it in theory, but it's harder in practice. So without further ado, why are we talking about boards? So I alluded to this already, but why are boards so important? The answer really is just that it's an investment. It's really difficult, of course. You're building a board, you're seeing the timer tick down, you're not doing the questions. You have that sense almost of guilt, like, oh my gosh, the clock is ticking. I'm not doing the questions. But at the same time, it's an investment upfront, just like a thorough read through on RC might be, or taking time to read the stimulus on logical reasoning might be. That when you spend time upfront on a board, oftentimes the game is constructed by the LSAT test writers In a way that if you have a board that visually represents what's going on and really makes the inferences they want you to make, you can answer some questions quite literally just by glancing at the board you made before even seeing the questions. And it flies by instead of having to do all of that work later under in the heat of the moment, really, when you're running through the questions. So it's an investment, one that requires some self-discipline, but
1: it's an investment nonetheless. No, and I think that's incredibly important, both in logic games and RC. So often when people are short on time on these sections, they try to save time in setup or with RC by trying to speed read through the passage. Ultimately, they cost themselves so much more time because when they actually get to the questions, they end up having to do more work on each question. Often, if you're struggling to finish the logic game section and really tackle it under the time or to compete for target time, chances are spending more time in the initial setup is ultimately going to help you in actually being faster, as counterintuitive as that might seem.
2: I couldn't agree more. And I would just emphasize that at risk of sounding hyperbolic, not having the right board can make some games unsolvable. That some games, they just have so many different potential worlds, that if you don't have a predictable way to really identify how those worlds cleave into different subworlds with a split, some games, it's just too much. You're going to have to brute force every question, that it's unsolvable in the amount of time you may
1: reasonably get in a typical section. You yeah, another point I'll make with that, that. This is often a bad habit that people come in either because they've done a lot of untimed practice, either because they used a platform that really encourages that, or because they practiced for some for so long doing untimed practice before they actually started taking time sections. Especially with logic games, I encourage you to make sure that you're at least taking, even in the early stages, time sections or timed games, even from the from the very beginning, because ultimately you can learn all sorts of bad habits by doing this untimed. Hopefully, you find that if you have have unlimited time, most of you could probably get 100% on even the most difficult games. But the strategies that you might be using to do that might not be really tenable when it gets to an actual timed timed game. So you should always be mindful of time when you're practicing games. And make sure you're not using strategies like brute forcing every question that might work in blind review, but aren't going to help you when you're taking the actual test.
2: Yeah, for the vast majority of games, brute forcing won't be necessary if you've done the work up front. Not always true, but a lot of the time, if you're brute forcing it, it's a sign that something went wrong with your board construction. So I would generally just say if we're trying to taxonomize the best LG students, best LG and maybe those who struggle a little bit more. If we're looking in the category of the best LG students, they know when to split. Scott and I both agree that most of the time you should split. So they might know, A, do I split? And B, along what rule do I split? And they also can represent information pretty quickly. They're able to make their game very visual. I think that's underrated, a very visual game, where you're not just mechanically applying rules, you're not even just looking at the logic, but you just have everything on the board that you can possibly have on the board. That, if you look at a board that I make, for example, you're not going to see that much logic. A lot of it is really just going to be me drawing stuff on my board and splitting in ways that I can just kill rules and put them as visually as possible on the board. Absolutely. Yeah, and then finally, they can find the quote-unquote ideal board. Games are not written in a way that is just there's multiple ways to solve it. A lot of the time, there is a board that really inferences just fly out and that the questions really
1: seem to trade on that board. So there is often a quote-unquote ideal board. Real quick before you get into the next slide, I'm going to answer the most common question I'm seeing in the Q&A, and that is, yes, we are going to make the recording available. In fact, a slight change from how we've done things previously, we're actually going to email you all a link to to this recording sometime tomorrow morning once we get it posted online. Uh, it's such a common question. We don't want you to have to hunt around with the forums for it. So if you're eager to get a, rec- a copy of this recording, rest assured that if you registered for this event, you're going to get it in your inbox sometime tomorrow morning.
2: So I would say there are several principles you want to follow for board construction.
1: The first one I won't
2: belabor, I already talked about this, time up front is well spent. That it feels lousy to look at the clock ticking down and not answer any questions. But time up front is an investment. When you have 10-second questions, 15-second questions, you're going to thank yourself that you were able to swallow that discomfort up front. And I would also just say the second thing is unforced errors kill your time. There is nothing worse for you than when you misdiagram a rule or actually one thing worse: when you misdiagram it and then you get five questions in and you realize why are there three, three correct answers for this question or why are there five incorrect answers and then you realize that the rule that said A comes before B you accidentally put B before A or something like that that you need to do what I call sort of a hard check before you hit the questions look through every rule I don't just mean the logic I mean the literal English writing and just double check it against your board make sure there wasn't an error that you cannot have unforced errors
1: no, I think that's exactly right. And by the way, if this is an area you struggle, this is a thing that you can specifically drill as well. So you know, go through and just tackle some games. Pick some from PTs 1 Either 35, either they're part of that drill set, and take some of the games and just focus on the initial rule generation at the very beginning of them. That can do wonders for just helping your speed. And give a challenge for yourself. Set a time that your, your goal is to be able to draw the board and write down all the rules within a certain time. And then make sure you actually got them right. Again, that that could do wonders for you being able to improve the accuracy and the speed with which you can go through these.
2: Yeah, so don't rush
1: because going back and fixing it always is that big time sink.
2: And then third, (laughs) I sound like a broken record already and we're only, what, 12 minutes in? When in doubt, split. Miscellaneous games generally don't have a good split. But most games that are of the sequencing or grouping variety, they will have at least one good split. Some games, we're going to see one later today actually, has three splits. You want to split it along all three of those things. And when you do that, you basically have made every single board for a five-star game. So when in that, you seriously want to split. It allows you to A, push out inferences, and B, to make it more visual. I'll talk about those more in a second. So, like I alluded to, visual is good. That I would say, really, you can think of it as the desire to avoid having to read rules repeatedly and the desire to avoid having to manually apply certain rules. The absolute best thing is you can place a rule on your board, cross out that piece, cross out that rule, and just know that you never have to think about that rule again. It's just there. So, if you can place, if you can split the board in a way that lets you get rid of a piece and get rid of a rule, that's always the best possible outcome. That I would say, really, it's if you have ordinal preferences here. Your lowest preference would be not writing it at all. You have to keep track of it, read the complicated, jargony English, and apply it. The next best thing is, or the slightly better thing, I should say, is logical notation. Writing it as, oh, okay, I know that A and B go next to each other. I'll put a little box next to each other with a switch on it. Or I know that if A is first, B is second. I'll write A, one, arrow, B, second. But the best thing, put it on the board, cross out the rule, cross out the piece, it's gone. So if you had to break it down, I guess, into five core steps, your recipe of sorts for a game. I would say the first thing is your initial setup. This is really not the hard part. This is just the avoiding unforced errors, avoiding the own goal, so to speak, where you list your pieces at the very top. You write out your rules. You figure out your base setup. Is it a simple five-line sequencing game? Is it a basic in-out game? Your initial setup, basically, just notating your rules, listing the main the pieces figuring out the core setup. So what game type is it? What are my pieces? What's my main board? And then the next thing is really where you read and notate the rules. Once you've figured out that main setup, you're then going to write down other rules. And here's when you start thinking about that I guess, trichotomy of sorts of rules that you might not write down at all, which would be few and far between. Rules that you notate in the logic, which would probably be a bunch of rules. And then rules that you can just represent visually on your board right away. So they're obvious ones. Like if they say A is fourth, well, of course, you're going to put A in the fourth slot. You're not going to write A four. But there's some that are trickier, like L can go first or second. Well, I would often actually split along a rule like that because then I can ignore that rule and then place L. But in any event, that's the second step, is to read the rules and then notate them. So we saw this before, not writing it is the worst, then comes logic, and then visual representation. Here's the hard part. This is really where the meat and potatoes of what makes logic games hard happens. You have to assess. Okay, you've listed all your rules. You've put things visually, but ask yourself, are there inferences? Are there any rules that can be pushed up against each other? Maybe it's the fifth rule and the first rule, when you're not even thinking about those two rules together. Maybe it's something that's really subtle that you could just never picture in your head, but you get just by staring at the board. But you have to ask yourself, are there inferences? A question that I always ask myself is, what's really restrictive? What are my pieces that can't go in a lot of spots? What are my spots that can't get filled by a lot of pieces? If it's a game with like in out elements, what if my out group is getting filled up? Like I only have two pieces that can go in my out group. Well, when that gets filled up, everything else has to go in. Thinking about really restrictive spots. That's often a way to push out inferences, to ask yourself, what makes this game restricted? What spots fill up? What pieces remain? And then using those inferences, that's often a prime candidate for splitting. Deciding that, okay, there really are only two pieces that can fill spot five. Well, I'll split it two ways. There are three pieces that can go out. I'll try a version of it where they're all where each one of them goes out. And Really, the cardinal rule for splitting is splitting is about making your game more visual. So, getting rid of rules, getting rid of pieces, putting it on the board, and then also pushing out inferences. The idea that you can just see how things interact more clearly when you split it along two or more different boards. And then, final step is just your housekeeping. Neaten things up. Circle your floating pieces. If you've placed a rule, cross it out. You've placed a piece, cross it out. Draw, I like to draw a nice little box around my main board to really separate this out from the boards that I'm gonna draw for each question, which by the way you should do. I'm not I'm a huge fan of drawing a new board for every question. That way you can see your boards from prior questions. You don't have messy erasures, anything like that. But then yeah, I draw a big box from my main board from my initial setup to a no not to touch it again, not to do anything with it later. Anything you wanna contribute there, Scott?
1: Yeah, well, just I know a common question when it comes to, you kind of covered in a lot of detail, here's how you set up a board. But a question a lot of people have is how roughly how long should this take? How much time should they be willing to dedicate to, to board setup as opposed to jumping into the questions? Yeah, I have my own thoughts on this, but you know, I, I thought before I prime you with my answer, I, I just get to hear the unfiltered Raphael version of this.
2: Yeah. In classic lawyerly form, it depends. It really depends on the number of rules. It depends on how many questions. I think for a game that has a lot of questions, spend more time on it. If it's only five questions, there's a little bit more urgency, I think, to hit the questions. That just like people say that sometimes a good proxy for number of boards you can split is no more than the number of questions. I think that applies for time as well. Games that have fewer questions, you want to just get through them quicker. But a game that has six questions, seven questions. Well, then I think it's okay then for you to spend a little bit more time on your board making some of those inferences. So it's less a specific number, but rather about a bunch of different factors, number of questions, how much time you have, is this game one or game four, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I would say that that's a major contributor for me. The earlier, especially as we get into the you know, the more recent season and live LSATs where they've kind of solidified this this format where the first two games of an LG section are going to be relatively easy, sometimes just shockingly easy, such that there's really no difficulty of the game other than to complete it quickly. And then a more complicated game three and a fairly difficult game four. Well, if you're really looking to to ace the logic game section, really, I would suggest that you aim to complete games one and two in between six and seven minutes each which means that your, your board setup really needs to probably be somewhere in the you know, two to three minute mark at, at most. And, and that's assuming that you do a really good board that means that you don't have to do a bunch of sub game boards for every question. And then that gives you proportionally more time to set up for for games three and game four. But I know, especially if you, if you do your time right, you should have actually quite a bit of time to set up a, your board for you know, a challenging game four. I know when I took the actual LSAT and I had a really difficult miscellaneous game four, fortunately, I had something like, 15 minutes on the clock at that point. And so I actually could just take a whole minute where I just, I wasn't sure how to draw this thing, but I could take a second and say, okay, look, I've earned myself this time. Let me give a couple of attempts of how I might draw this and see which one works. Okay. I I see why this one is not going to be a good one. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with the second one. And that one full minute, which seemed like forever with the clock ticking down, but that, that extra minute did wonders for me being able to complete that and ultimately with time to spare on the real day. So if you're looking to save time, don't try to save time on setup. Try to save time on questions by making your setup better.
2: I completely agree, and I would just add some urgency to that. But some games actually, you have to go fast on games one and two. I think a good example of this is PT sixty eight. Games one and two are shockingly easy that you almost should feel nervous, with good reason, looking at games one and two. Like this is these are so easy, and then you see game three and it's still pretty easy. You're either thinking I got lucky, or more likely, game four is going to be a doozy. And that is a game that legitimately most people would require at least fifteen minutes to do game four. JY I think said it took him fifteen minutes to do that game four. That you if you're not fast on games one and two. You just are not going to finish game four. It's like seven questions, and there are no inferences you can make up front. It's brutal. So certain certain sections are like that. Cool. I think that mostly covers our step-by-step. So briefly, I've talked about a lot of this. I want to just hit main points here with splitting. I would say a couple of things you should consider. I've talked already about the merits of splitting, but in terms of more, more tactically how you actually split, you need to pick a rule that is amenable to splitting. You obviously cannot split upon all rules. Sometimes there are a couple of rules that seem good to split on. So you have to decide which one's better. Here are the criteria I would use to assess which rule to split on. One is that it results in fewer worlds. If you can have two neat worlds with a split, That's better than five, all things being equal. It's restrictive. It's something that you realize when you're putting it there, there are not that many options. Why does that matter? Well, it means more inferences. Restrictive things typically are going to interact with more pieces. There are going to be fewer possibilities, so you can see a little bit more. So once you do that, it's fewer worlds and it's restrictive. Then you just clone the board. Unfortunately, it's not like JY or you just copy-paste it. You're going to have to redraw it yourself, but you... (laughs) quote-unquote, clone the board, and then fill out the old rules. I would really suggest being neat about this. I just put the board right next to it, and then I very linearly do my split. So if one of my, let's say I was splitting along L1, L2, I'll put L1 on my left side, L2 on my right side. I will really try to keep this very systematic. If I'm doing it with four boards, four board splits, something big like that, I'll do square, and I'll just go really, really neatly through that. You want to be very careful here not to accidentally mess this
1: up and write the wrong thing. Something to add to fewer rules and restrictive rules. There, anytime the else you, you realize as you're you've you've written down the rules and you're thinking about the different possibilities, if you realize that a piece can only go in one of two out of seven slots, that's a really good suggestion that that might be a good board split. Or and sometimes the else side just hands it to you, but it, they give you a rule that says either A is here or A is there or either A is in first place or B is in first place. Anytime they give you something that clear, it has to be one of two possibilities. The only reason you should not be splitting off a rule like that is that you you see an even better, more restrictive rule that you can do it off of. But anytime you're given that sort of, okay, either has to be one possibility or the other, that's really the the test writers kind of waving a red flag and telling you, please split off of this rule. And you'll generally find that when you split off a rule like that, you're going to find that you sometimes you can just answer all of the questions without drawing any other sub-game boards because that's what the test writers intended for you to do all along. Whereas if you find that, man, every question is requiring that I write draw two or three more boards to get through it, that's almost always a sign that you've missed something along the way. The test writers gave you some hint that you did not take and that a, a board split probably would have saved you from having to do that. Agreed. Okay,
2: now the moment we've been waiting for. We're going to do a game together. So I don't want there to be dead time. I know sometimes people just say, take some time to do this. I don't want to do that. So we're going to talk through this together and then we'll sort of incrementally construct the board. So this game, this one's a very simple game. We have one later on that is a little bit, is much, much harder. But this one is simple and this is one where you can solve it completely by splitting. So I'd encourage you to do this actively, not passively. Don't just listen to me, but take out a piece of paper, take out a pen and do this or pencil if you prefer and do this on your own while we talk through it. So... There are seven houses on a street. Each house is occupied by one of seven families. The Khans, the Lowe's, the Moors, the Newmans, the, Owens, Piets, and Rutens. So from now on, they are K-L-M-N-O-P-R. As soon as I see seven houses on a street, I'm sort of immediately thinking this is probably going to be sequencing. I'm having a hard time seeing what they would be for, if it was a grouping game. Like, I don't know, the lights are on or off on those houses or something like that. But no, I'm thinking probably this is going to be sequencing. So the houses are on the same side of the street which runs from west to east. Okay, so I'm immediately thinking, yeah, west to east, it's going to be some type of sequencing game. And then I look down a little bit, I see first and last house, fourth. Yeah, it's a sequencing game. So this is a good example of a simple sequencing game with one-to-one mapping, meaning we have seven spots, seven pieces. Nothing funky, like, oh, the Lowe's and the Moors, they live together. It's actually only six houses, or one of the houses is empty. Nothing like that. Seven people, seven houses. Okay, so I'm immediately just thinking pretty straightforward. I'm just going to draw my seven houses, seven dashes across, and list my pieces at the top. So I've listed K-L-M-N-O-P-R, seven, and then my seven slots. W and E, they're not pieces. Be very careful about that. The LSAT, they're they're nice. They're not going to have be like a bunch of letters towards the end of the alphabet. You might confuse with W. So you're not going to really be at risk of thinking W is a piece because everything else is alphabetical. Same with E. But if you don't think you need to write it, you don't have to. But that can still be useful just to keep track, really, spatial orientation here. So let's look at these rules. The Rutans do not live in the first or last house in the street. You could just write this as Rx1, Rx7, but I'm a big fan of doing it visually. So put an R slash underneath the first spot, underneath the seventh spot. This next rule I love, the cons are in the fourth house from the west end. We could just place the cons. And now I can cross out that K rule, gone. I never have to think about K again. K is just completely a dead piece for me. That rule is a dead rule. Now we have four rules. We don't have, excuse me, we have three rules. We don't have four anymore. The next one, Moors live next to the cons. This is one where you really need to make sure you have that switch. That little thing above it is a switch, meaning it could be KM or it could be MK. So we could totally have M on the left side of K up here, or we could have on the right side. We have no idea. And then we have Pyatts live east of the cons and the Moors, but west of the lows. So you could represent this separately. P to the right of KM, P to the left of L why not just put it all together? These pieces, they all have the same relationship to each other. And if you're not really seeing why that is, you may want to review the core curriculum on chaining stuff up together. But these pieces all have a relationship. K is to the left of L, even if it doesn't say that directly. The fact that P is to the right of K and L is to the right of P means that we can infer a relationship between K and L.
1: And something I like about how you've done this is that instead of having four rules listed out separate from the board, you've essentially pushed almost everything onto the board and then you just have this one little chain that's the only rule that you have to refer to and again that because that makes it so much more visual it makes it much easier for you to see any inferences that are going to spill out of it it just makes you faster So if this is something you struggle with, if you you don't see how to do this, this is a place that you want to invest some time and spend some time drilling. Learn how to incorporate your rules into the board as quickly and efficiently as possible because it's going to make you faster. It's going to make you a lot more accurate on games as well. Exactly.
2: And this is the part where we take stock of what we do next. Do we, what inferences we make? Can we split? So my eye immediately is just going towards this KM rule. It, there are two possibilities. K KM and MK. And I know, of course, there's a deep relationship between the P and L pieces and KM. This is a perfect opportunity to split. So I'm going to do that. M to the left, M to the right. It's a perfect opportunity to split. And now, guess what? I can cross out M as well. K and M, gone. So now let's see. Are there any inferences we can make about either of these boards? The answer is yes. Remember, P and L go to the left of KM. So this board at the bottom, this is a joke at this point, this board at the bottom. We can just put PL there, and this board is almost done. Now we just have three spots, but this entire right side is filled out. Because remember, PL go to the right of KM. We don't know exactly where PL go above, but we know they're going to go in one of those three. So I would do a little cloud, maybe a circle around it. that stretches over these three spots or a box like that that basically shows that P and L are going to go to the right of M, K. And then at that point, we've crossed out those pieces. K, L, M, or sorry, K and M are gone. We're going to circle N and O. There are floating pieces. They're interchangeable. So N and O, they do the exact same thing. If you see N and O both listed as answers for a question, both are wrong because they're interchangeable pieces. So anything that N does, O can do, vice versa. Yeah. And now you'll just get a sense at this point how easy this game is going to be for us. And I guess I should also clarify, there are a couple of more things you could split along or push out. So like in our board, the second board, slot one where R can't go, well, it's got to be N or O, of course, since if P and L are placed, K and N are placed, and R can't go there, it's got to be N or O. So you could, if you wanted to do N slash O for the first slot, you could do that. But in any event, you're going to see just how easy it is to hit the questions now that we have this completely cracked open. Which the families could live in the house that is turn this to the east? Well, immediately you immediately can tell R is out, because R is never allowed to go there. P has a piece that comes to the right of it, so P can never go there. K and M are already placed, so it's got to be N. You can just intuit that just by glancing at the board. I'm not going to really do the rest of the questions other than just to show you how quickly this can go by, but like, can't live next to the cons. So you can just glance at this and see which pieces are just literally never going to live next to the cons. Some pieces, they can, but you can just look at the board and realize that, for example, there is just no universe in which you're going to put L next to the cons. That's just not going to happen, whereas the other ones could. Scott, anything you want to add here? This, I think, is pretty straightforward at this point. I don't even really feel the need to run through these.
1: Yeah. No, and I think you're exactly right. I think be- because you set it up correctly, all of the other pieces just kind of fall, I mean fall into place. It becomes effortless, in other words, to run through these questions. No, is every board going to turn into this? Absolutely not. There are going to be hard game three, and game four that even if you split correctly, you're still going to have to do sub game boards. There's still things that you're going to have to brute force. There are going to be accept rules where I might have to do two or even three sub game boards to answer a really hard question. And rule substitution questions are always going to be a nightmare, pretty much in any game. But if if we can save time, and this is a trend that I s- find myself saying on all of these <laughs> webinars, no matter which section of the game we're talking about, that if we can save time on the easy material, on the easy games, the easy passages, the easy LR questions, whatever section we're talking about, if we can save time on the easy material, we drastically improve our accuracy on the difficult material. Because ultimately, again, if, especially if you've you've done your studies, if you've internalized a lot of these rules, your, your BR score is probably you're going to be fairly high coming into your test. The the key. Be- The key difference between you and the score you're aiming for is generally not that you don't know enough. It's that you don't have time to really attain high accuracy on the difficult material. That should be the key of good board design. It should let you tackle the easy games, one, two, and oftentimes three, as efficiently as possible so that then you have the time to really play detective and work your way through the really complicated, difficult games sometimes find their way onto the end of the section. And that's really the difference between someone who is muddling around in kind of the, the middle of the pack or the middle of the bell curve on on logic games and people who are able to consistently get minus one or minus zero on the section is that they, they've mastered the timing game, they've mastered the strategy, they've got they've gotten gotten to the point where really any of the one, two, or three-star games are simply effortless for them now. And it's because they're able to visually depict the information, they're able to split effectively. And so they're able to just comb through this really, really efficiently. Exactly.
2: And I think that this is one where time up front is just completely worth it. That the questions, you could, no joke, do the questions in three minutes because you really will not have to draw a new board for many of these, maybe even perhaps none of them. Will you have to draw on your board. So, yeah, that really does help speed this up. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I do want to save time for questions, but I want to show people a really challenging game that I would say is near impossible without splitting. So, we're not going to do this game together. I'm just going to tell you the ways you should split it, or we're going to talk through it together. But... This is one, an example of how you can actually solve a five-star game just by splitting it, which is both necessary and sufficient for this game, in my opinion. So this one's grouping, or sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. But seven film buffs. G-I-L-M-R-V-Y. Okay, seven people. Showing of classic films. Maybe we're putting them in order, but nope. Three films are shown, one by F, one by H, one by K. Okay, so three groups. F, H, K. Each film buff sees one film. So it seems straightforward, right? We have seven people going to three films. You're going to not have someone just go on like a movie binge and see three films. Each person sees one film. So you're going to maybe have five people in the F category. Or nobody sees the Kurosawa film or something like that. Whatever. So following restrictions apply. So first rule. Twice as many see Hitchcock as Fellini. So immediately I'm thinking, what a nightmare rule. I do not want to have to think about this. Oh, am I making sure that there are twice as many in H as there are in F? I think I mentioned this earlier. Good candidates for rules to split along are those that you don't want to have to worry about. Because remember, when you split along a rule, that rule is gone. It's dead. So if you split along that rule, you don't have to worry about it again. So immediately I'm thinking, I really don't want to have to deal with this rule again. So maybe that's a good candidate to split. But we'll bracket that for a second. Twice as many CH as F. Okay, then we have an always apart rule. G and R don't see the same film. Straightforward. I would just do a box, GR, not together. Another always apart rule. I and M do not see the same film. Okay. I and M don't see the same film. Cool. Always apart. Then an always together rule. V and Y do see the same film. They're a box. They always go together. Oh, and then we have a rule that I love. L is an H. Great. L is gone. Never have to worry about L again. L is placed. Then we have another rule. G sees F or K. Again, I'm thinking that's a really attractive split candidate. G goes in F or K. Well, I can get rid of G and I can fill up two of the spots. So at this point, I can also push that up against this G and R rule. So I'm seeing kind of two really attractive, or three really attractive places to split this. The first is splitting along how many see Hitchcock and Fellini. One is splitting along the three different spots. I could put B and Y. And another is splitting along the two spots. I could put G. So which one do I split along? The answer is actually, I'm going to split along all three, which is why this game is going to be completely solved out. But the answer for what I do first, I'm actually going to split first along the lines of the Hitchcock and Fellini one. Two times more people see Hitchcock and Fellini. Why is that? It's because that rule annoys me. I really don't want to have to worry about this rule. And it also is going to push out a lot of other inferences. You might be thinking, ostensibly, this is not a very restrictive split, right? Oh, there are so many different ways to multiply two times the number of pieces. We're going to law school for a reason. We're probably not very good at math, that we're not really sure exactly how to do this. Well, the answer is there are seven people, and we have to have at least one person seeing each film. So it really is actually going to be two people see Fellini... Four people see Hitchcock, and then there's one person left who sees Kurosawa, or one Fellini, two Hitchcock, and then four Kurosawa. It's got to be—those are the only two ways to split this, which makes this very restrictive then. And then you just have two boards, and that rule is gone. And then at that point, the game becomes so much easier. You then just split along the VY rule, because that VY rule, of course, if they're always together, they can't go in the spot that has one piece. So they're going to have to go in the slot that has two or the one that has four. And then here's the kicker. When you do that, you're actually going to realize the V and Y can only go in the slot that has four or or three. Why is that? They can't go in the one that has two because if you put them there, you are always going to violate the always apart rules of G and R and then I and M. And when you do this yourself, you're going to, and I encourage you to do this yourself, you're going to see how that works. That V and Y actually have to go in the three or the four slots. They cannot go in a slot that just has two, at risk of violating the always apart rules. And then so that basically results in you having, in essence, still just two boards because you've placed V and Y in a couple of slots that didn't work. Those boards were dead. So you still now you've gotten rid of V and Y. You've gotten rid of another rule. You've now placed three pieces. You have only four left and you've knocked out two rules. You're in an amazing spot. And then I'm sorry, you've knocked out three rules. And then you you place You split along G and F or G and K. And now let's just take stock of what we have. The first rule's gone. We have the two always-apart rules, G and R, I and M. And then rules 4, 5, 6 are gone. And we placed every single piece except for R, I, and M. You are now playing a three-item game where everything else has been placed. That's pretty nice for a five-star game. Going in, having two rules left and three pieces. So just to summarize this, you split it along the number of slots. You split it along the DY piece. And then you split it along where R goes. I, I don't expect you to have followed all of this, by the way, if you weren't mapping this out. You definitely need to do this on your own, either alongside me or afterwards just doing it again. But rem- I think you should sort of test yourself, right? Remember that I told you there are three ways to split it. And then see if you can recall that doing this on your own. Because that will make this this game a lot easier. In fact, this makes the game a seven minute game, which is amazing for a five star game. Instead of a game that game three, you might not even get to game four if you were trying to brute force this. It's just this game is built to be split. Scott, anything you wanna add to that
1: before we take questions? No, I I think you did a good job explaining it. So before we turn things over to questions and I will go ahead and tell you the way this works is if you have a question, Go and press the raise hand button that is at the bottom of your screen or perhaps on some other area of your screen. That'll put you roughly in order. And once we have a few people who have done that, I'll start calling on you. You'll have to unmute your audio. So get your finger ready to do that. But before we do that, and while people are queue up for questions, I did have two opportunities that I just wanted to, to tell you about today and to make you aware of. The first is a new program that we have at Seven Sages called our Study Group Breakout Program. If you're looking for a study group and want an easy way to meet up, this is a perfect opportunity for you. And in this event, we automatically pair you with a group of people with similar PT scores and a Zoom chat similar to this so that you can work an LR section together. Our next one of these is next Monday, and you can find the link to register for that in the chat just now. The other opportunity I always like to talk about is if you enjoyed Raphael's talk tonight and would like some individual help from a gifted tutor like him, you're in luck. Seven Sage is home to one of the largest and fastest growing tutoring programs on the net, and we're eager to help you achieve your goal score. I'm going to put a chat link in the chat that you can use to to sign up for a free consultation with one of our tutors. You can ask any questions that you might have about our program and ultimately decide if tutoring is right for you. With that, Nathan is our first question. So Nathan, go ahead and ask your question.
0: Okay, great. I had two questions. The first one was, I know I love JY, but he always just erases and then starts to then, then he copies and pastes
1: the board. I was curious if you could ever make a video just how you write it out, because I, I struggle with my notes getting messy. And then I know you talked about making really neat notes. And I'd love to see an example of that. We definitely do that.
2: Yeah. And I would just say the principle obviously more difficult to practice but the principle should be draw your main board put a box around it don't ever touch it again and then draw in small small handwriting so you don't clutter things up a separate board for every question and do that separate from your main board so it avoids you contaminating this main board like the worst thing in the world is to draw on your main board when you're doing questions and then if they tell you like if a is first what must be true you draw a on your main board and then a is there permanently you don't realize that that was actually a local question that you just now I've messed up your main board. Yeah, I'll,
1: I'll go ahead and throw it out there a trick I use on the LSAT and is absolutely legal. Is you're allowed five sheets of scratch paper. That doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be an eight and a half by eleven piece of scratch paper. You are absolutely allowed to have an eight and a half by fourteen piece of scratch paper. And if you write big like me, that is incredibly useful. So feel free to get slightly larger legal sized paper. And that gives you just a little couple more inches at the edge that you can use to, to write your boards. That's it's a fantastic tip. That's a great tip. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, I didn't. Yeah,
1: I was going to follow up to because now the tests are online and I love to cross out the rules because I know that I made I, I've, I've diagrammed it out but you can't do that when it's on a screen. Do you have any tips for that?
2: Yeah, I think cross it out when you notate it on your paper. And if you're writing the rules in logic or whatever, cross it out. One thing, if you really want to be able to just cross it out on the main diagram or the main, the main setup where they give you on the screen, just highlight it when you've done it. Highlight it or underline it, something like that. Or you could do the flip side of it. You, under, you highlight the rules that you have not eliminated. So that's another option. Any rule that is still live in play, you highlight in yellow,
1: something like that. Nathan, thank you so much for your question. All right, next up, Hill.
0: Yeah, hello. Thank you, Scott and Rafael. I, I actually learned a lot more than I expected. I was just wondering, is there an easier way to determine if a board setup should be double layered or not? Because that's what I seem to struggle with is whether or not it should be doubled.
2: Yeah, I would say if I had to give you a textbook definition of a double-layer sequencing game, and it's sequencing where this happens a lot of the time, it's when you have a sequencing element, and then you also have attributes that go with it. So, for example, we're playing five movies. Some of the movies are going to be on big screen or small, or like IMAX or non-IMAX or something. So you have the sequencing element. Oh, yeah, we have Star Wars playing first. We have m- the Minions movie playing third. But then you also have the IMAX, non-IMAX thing. So it's sequencing, and then there's some attribute uh, to the piece. Then you'd represent the line below. And it's typically going to be a binaristic attribute. Yes, no, or IMAX, non-IMAX, free, not free. I wish there were free movies. Yeah, basically like that.
1: Okay, thank you so much. Our pleasure. And Jane, you're next.
3: Hi, yeah. I had a question about the example that we just did with the film board setup. I know that sometimes in JY's explanations, he'll just use slashes. And like in this example, when I was sort of walking it through with myself, I was noticing like, oh, there's a spot that four of these elements could go. So can you give me some advice on like, when is it useful to use that slash notation in these kinds of game board setups? And when is it better to just leave them empty and let it be?
2: Yeah, I, lo- I love that question, because I think the slash notation is great. I would say use a slash if it's two items. That's the only time I use a slash. If it's three items, then it just gets too messy. And I'm dangerously worried that my bad handwriting is going to cause me to mess this up. That I do a slash if it's two items, and that's kind of it. So you'll notice, actually, the first game, I sort of on the spot improvised, oh, actually, slot one, we could have done an N slash O. Leaving it blank is acceptable, too. But we could have, there are only two pieces that can go there. I personally am a big fan of using the slash. There are two pieces. So, you know, put this in logical terms. If and only if there are two pieces that can go in a spot, you should
1: use a slash. Yeah, and I, I will point out the only reason that the that the one game that we did did not have that slash is uh, I just looked back. It, it was in Rafael's original notes, but unfortunately he has me as a graphic designer and I completely forgot to put the N-O slash. So he was very gracious not to call me out on that. One thing else I would say: if you ever find yourself thinking, "Oh, there could be three or four that go in the slot," often an easier way to note that is to mark. Let's say there's four possibilities that could go in the slot. There's six total pieces. Well, you can mark below the slot the pieces that can't go there, and often that can be a lot faster and a lot clearer to see. Anytime I'm trying to cram four things in a small space, I'm having a lot of trouble. But if I could put two things, well, usually that's a, that's pretty easy for me to see. Great, thank you guys so much. Oh, our pleasure, Zachary. You're next.
0: Hi, thank you. Yeah, I had a question. I'm sure I'm probably in good company in that replacement
1: questions give me a lot of trouble. They take a lot of time, right? Just as you said at the beginning. And I was wondering if you could share any principles that you think about in approaching those questions.
2: Yeah, 90% of you
1: should, should skip
2: them. And I don't say that to in a condescending way. I, I, skipped, I skipped the rule replacement question on my real LSAT. I didn't go back to it. And I, I got a good score. And I, I, I skipped it. I didn't even answer it. So I'm telling you that I, I did that. I, most people, I think, should skip it. It's a question that is a luxury question that is going to take you probably four minutes or more to do. And unless you have the time, skip it. But if you are attempting it, I would say the big thing is just to realize there are two ways that a rule replacement can go wrong. It can bring in new worlds that are not allowed, or it can knock out new worlds that ought to be allowed. So you first ought to just look at the rule replacement and see if the choices, if any of them just seem kind of facially silly. Like just skim any of these just seem obviously too restrictive or obviously not restrictive enough. And then you just go through each one of those tests. I don't care which order you start with. Does this allow in new worlds that are not allowed? Does this knock out worlds that are I know are allowed? And this is, again, a reason why drawing a new board for every question is so helpful. You have, like, five different boards at this point you can look back at, and you can say, ah, yes, this rule that I'm considering substituting, it would prohibit this board from question three that I know is obviously okay. But I will just repeat, skip it. Even if you're someone who's scoring a 180 like Scott, the first pass through the section, you need to skip the rule replacement. You only come back to it if you have time at the end. And if you don't have time to do it, that's okay.
1: Yeah. And I'm happy to verify that. I absolutely did skip all the rule replacement questions until my, my second round through my LG section on the real thing. So absolutely. That is my first and most important tip, but exactly what Raphael was saying hopefully you know, by the time you deal with them you have a bunch of boards on that are on your paper that you haven't erased and that you haven't crossed out that you can use to kind of data mine and see hey which as I go through a, B C D let me confirm this with all of the viable boards that I've now I have in front of me and make sure that this isn't that this isn't negating a, a board that I know ought to be viable Hopefully that can at least get you down to two boards and and then from there you can kind of make your best guess but generally I think've I've been successful if I've gotten it very quickly down to two possibilities in a real a rule substitution question. And if I then have time, I can really work to to narrow it down from two to one.
0: Thanks. Thanks very much.
1: Oh, our pleasure. All right, Alan, you're next. All right, sweet. I just want to ask that one thing I normally do is when I look at a lot, logic game i see like how many
0: global versus how many like local questions there are and that kind of determines my time on how much time i spend on the actual inferences versus the ac- versus like just each question is that
1: like a bad habit i think you and rafael are bound to be friends i think is what, what i'm learning from this
4: <laughs>
2: yeah I, I I think about it very similarly. I think the the way I would put it is slightly differently. What I do is I actually look for the local questions and then do those first That any question that gives me a new condition, so for example, if it says if a is first, what must be true, I'd much rather do that than just a blanket must be true question because for, I don't know I, I just stare at those global questions like what must be true, what could be true? I don't even know where to start Boris if it tells me. If A is first, so it must be true, I can at least write A first and see if more inferences pop out. So I always start with the ones that are local. So for me, it's less about my upfront inferences, but more about I'm going to do the questions first that give me those upfront, that give me those those conditions. So I'll do the acceptable situation question. Then I'll do the questions that give me a new a new rule. Then I'll do the super global ones, like what must be true, what could be true. And then I'll do the ones that involve counting, like how many places could F go, or how many pieces could go in the first slot. And then finally is acceptable situation. That's always the formula I follow.
0: Wait, so locals,
2: globals, and then counting? Yeah, I'll even write. Can I send it to everybody? I don't know. Yes, if I can you can. Everybody. I was going to put it in the chat box. But local, acceptable, situation, local, global. Oh, sorry. I meant this. Yeah, acceptable situation, local, global, counting, sub, a
1: quiv. Also,
0: Scott, nice life hack
1: with a big piece of paper. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you what, I was an old guy with bad eyes. It was really a lifesaver that I wasn't having to write really, really tiny script. Thank you so much for your question. And then Nick. Awesome. Thank you guys. So my question regards very
0: conditional heavy rules for games. So the one that comes to mind is that I'm not going to give away or anything, but the bus, the bus game where you have to to play this, the seats and JY in one of his his videos, he stated that we were supposed to not even try building our sub game boards because it's just so conditional heavy. So would that fall into the category of 10% of uh, the games that we don't draw the subgame game wars? And if so, what are the general principles for deciphering which games fall into that
2: 10% category? Yeah, I'm maybe more hawkish on splitting than JY is. I split that game. That I split along the HG rule for that game. I built like, what was it? It's six pieces. So it was like HG, HG... I don't remember the specifics, but I definitely split along HG. And then after that, I split along where the K-piece can go. So for those of you who have not done this game, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But but my point here is that I actually did split along that game. That, that game, I think, is fairly conditional. But there are a few rules that are not conditional. And I, I think in the conditional-heavy games, you sort of look for an oasis, almost, of the non-conditional rules and split along those. But I will also say, actually, for conditional rules, you can sometimes split. You just split along the rule, and then you contrapose it and can split along that as well. So if they say to you, for example, A, if A is before B, then B is before C. Well, I'll do one where it is A, B, C, and then one where it's C, B, A. So you can also split it along those veins. There's a game that's really good for that. I think it's in pta It's the one with like ranking restaurants where it's like you've the eight restaurants and it's like, if this one's before that, then the other one's before that one. That one is one where it very neatly splits if you do conditional and then contrapose. So that's a very long winded way of saying that game I would split. And more generally speaking, there are creative ways to split conditional games.
0: Awesome. So the contrapose
1: back and then the conditional statements can still be split.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not universally, but yeah. Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, and I would just like to take a moment before we take the next question to point out that yes, this is what it's like to work with Raphael. He not only remembered that game; he knows exactly which test it comes from, and knows furthermore the exact rule that he would use to split that game. So, yeah, these are the sorts of people we have working here at Seven Sage, and I absolutely love every moment of it. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. So, Julianne, we'll we'll have you go next.
4: Hi. So, I was just wondering that before struggling with getting logic games fast enough, how would you recommend practicing? So would you recommend giving ourselves a little extra time, doing it with unlimited time? What's the best practice for that?
2: Yeah, I think the nice thing about blind review is that it gives you a chance to practice that with unlimited time. But after you've done it, I think it, it can actually build a lot of really bad habits if your first pass through is with unlimited time. I mean, I guess what I like about core curriculum, and I'm I'm not saying this just as someone who works at Seven Sage, I, I used it myself to study. What I like about core curriculum is the first couple games you do are guided walkthroughs where you're doing it as JY does it, which means that as he's working through it, you're doing it with unlimited time. But pretty quickly, you graduate beyond that. After doing that for like two games, three games, you're then doing them timed first. And then if you totally wipe out, you only do the first two questions, great you're now able to do it unlimited time and blind review. So my answer is yes, do them with unlimited time. But the antecedent condition for that has to be first doing it with timed conditions so that you can at least start building those habits of pushing through it quickly because you're always going to have timing on the real test.
1: Yeah. And the one thing I'll add to that is also foolproof. So I actually kind of like this webinar and this topic because this was the section that I really had difficulty on when I was studying for the, for the test. Foolproofing really does work. I work through as many questions as you can. Identify any that you got wrong under time or that you went too long under time, that you went over target and drill them to the point where they are effortless. And by the time you work through about half of the BTs and half of the logic game sections doing that, you will find that it suddenly it does become easy. All
0: right, Martinez. Hi. Yeah, so I kind of like one question is, it's kind of like, that's like this one game from hell that still keeps me up at night. But uh, for the types of games where like the, I guess the game board isn't as obvious of like how to write it out. Like the game I'm referencing is the one with like the connecting flights from the five cities, if you recall. Like, how do you kind of like, I guess, tackle those games where the game board isn't very obvious, the kind you're supposed to like make or design?
2: Yeah. So I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not really positive. I'm, I'm following. Do you mind rephrasing phrasing that. I'm not positive of following.
0: Yeah, so I guess the more obscure games, like the more miscellaneous games, where it's not a sequencing or grouping, and it's kind of like, I guess, just like a game that's like less conventional, like how do you kind of like tackle the game board, like in a quick manner?
2: I see. Yeah, I would say the biggest thing for that is to be flexible with your thinking. So be flexible and be willing to go visual. So people mess up those games when they try to just impose a grouping setup or a sequencing setup. If the game seems logical like it goes in a circle, draw a circle. If it seems logical like it's going to be rows of five, draw rows of five. Go with what they're telling you to do. Draw a picture if that's what they're telling you to do. I would say the biggest thing is not to just impose your schema of grouping or sequencing on it.
1: Yeah. Something I'll add to that as well. Don't be afraid on a miscellaneous game like that to take some actual time 30 30 seconds even up to a minute to really figure out how to depict that game because ultimately on those really kind of crazy miscellaneous games that kind of defy our previous expectations the nice thing about them is that usually the entire challenge of that game is figuring out how in heaven's name you're going to draw it there will not be difficult inferences in a game like that because if it was also had difficult logical inferences as well as being hard to draw no one would finish it under time so really think to yourself yourself when you hit a game like that, that hey, the entire challenge of this game is can I figure out how to depict it visually? I'm going to take some time to do that because I know if I can do that, the rest of this is going to fall into place. And that airplane game is a perfect example of that. As soon as you kind of figure out a, a way that works that you can draw that, the actual logic behind it is actually very simple. It's not much more difficult than a, than a, a typical sequencing game. But the the great difficulty is figuring out how do I draw this in some sort of intelligible way. So don't be afraid to spend the time to figure that out. I agree
0: completely. Mm -hmm. So like, would you recommend just practicing those kinds of games more than more miscellaneous if you struggle with them? Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. And also PT one to 16. Those games are weird. And some people say you won't get a game like that again. So it's not worth practicing. I say exactly. You won't get a game like that again, because they're so weird that if you're training yourself to do those obscure games, nothing they throw at you is going to surprise you.
1: Yeah, no, I found the exact same when I was kind of honing in on that consistent minus zero, I got to the point you're probably about a month before my actual test where any standard game type was pretty much effortless. But miscellaneous games were the thing I really struggled with. So that's what I did. I turned back to those really early games that I had ignored because they're all obsolete and so why do I need to practice them well the value of practicing them especially when you're you're getting close to test day is that they force you to think outside the box and to deal with a novel game and so often on the recent on the recent tests they love to put a game three or a game four that is some sort of miscellaneous game that forces you to invent a new strategy on the fly and those really old pts which normally they're they're obsolete you're not going to see anything like them but they are going practice for making you come up with something new and novel. All right. Thank you. Of course. All right. Let's see. Bryant. Hi, guys. Can you hear me? We can. All
3: right. So when the outside writers give us a game where we don't know exactly how many
0: pieces fill up the game board, how can we possibly split if we don't know the exact number of characters being used?
2: So you can often still split along some rules, even if they don't, rules that are independent of that. So if they say, for example, L goes first or L, or L goes in group one or L goes in group two, even if you don't know how many pieces are going to go in groups one and two, you can still push out some inferences, for example, things that relate to L, things that relate to the group having a maximum. Like even if you don't know that the group is going to have two or three, but so that it can't be more than five. Within those parameters, you can still split a bit. So I think that you're not going to ever have complete information, or you might not always, but at the very least, you can know about the interrelationships between pieces or at least some sort of limiting conditions that apply to that that spot that group
1: okay all right cool thank you of course. of course all right jennifer and by the way i know guys we're a little over time of course if you need to leave feel free we probably i, I see demirez looks like they're the the last person who raised their hand we will get through these questions and then we'll probably close up at that point but anyone who has their hand raised now we, we stick around we'll make sure to answer your questions
3: Hi, I'm back again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask a really simple question. We just discussed about the miscellaneous games that are very unusual. And when I whenever I see the, these questions on the PT, I, I literally get freezed and I was just wondering, would it be good to come back to these kind of questions
2: after I've done all three games? Yeah, I think that being strategic with skipping around can be smart. I think of it very much just like certain questions, if they're harder, they're luxury questions. Each question is worth the same, but some questions just take more time. But I would not have any compunctions about skipping if it's taking you too long. The logic I gave before about substitution equivalence definitely applies here. That if you feel like you have to skip something, that's that's okay. Yeah, so I would be willing to come back to it if that's what the
1: situation calls for. Okay, thank you. Of course. Okay, Kristen. That was actually my
5: exact question that i just been asked. So I'm
1: okay. <laughs> Fantastic. We love it when that happens. No problem.
4: All right. Derek. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Hi. Good. Good. Thank you. I have two questions. Oh, so sorry if someone has asked these questions. So... Spinning board might cost some time so I'm wondering uh, but, but for some question, you don't need to really split the board and still can get the question right so I'm wondering how to decide in the first place before I go into the questions how to decide Uh, for these questions I should split the board or I should just go into the question directly and my second question is for some for some uh, questions uh, you don't need to make all the inferences maybe you can uh, just make a partial inference and, can, and then and you can find the answer choice. So how to, uh, is there any a rule or suggestion that how to decide whether I should make all the inferences and then go to, into the questions or I should uh, just make the inference to a certain point and then I should, and, and, and then go to the questions first. Yes, thank you.
2: Yeah, I think that if the good litmus test is how open-ended is this game. If the game feels extremely open-ended, then it's more likely you're gonna wanna split because you're just gonna be spinning your wheels. But if it's a very restricted game, you've already made a bunch of stuff, you've already figured out a bunch without splitting, yeah, then the opportunity cost in terms of time may not be worth it. Do you mind repeating the second question? I'm so bad at keeping track of two questions at once. I apologize.
4: Yeah, no problem. So my second question is like, for example, for uh, when you go to some questions, uh, they will go give you additional premise. So yeah. that will allow you to make more uh, inferences. But my feeling is that for some questions, you don't need to make all the inferences, and you can still get the uh, you can still find the. Uh, right answer. Sometimes you can just make partial inference and then find the answer. So how to decide, I should make all the inferences and then go into the questions, or I should just make the inference to a certain point and see the answer choice first.
2: Yeah, I think it comes back to the first question. Well, I guess for starters, flipping through the questions ahead of time sort of can be a waste of time. Like it just might end up taking too much time for you to analyze, oh, this question gives me enough inferences to make a board this way, or that one does. That just feels like a a not zero cost option in terms of time. But yeah, I would generally say my my previous answer, the reasoning still applies here, which is that when when you look at it up front, you ask yourself, how restrictive is this? If it's really restrictive, there's less of a need for you to split it then. But if it's not so restrictive, you might need to pair it down a bit which then necessitates a little bit more of a split
4: okay thank you thank you very
2: much
1: absolutely sonia
3: yeah so my question was just like what kind of tips do you guys have for two specific game scenarios the first being when you have three different subgroups and so i don't remember exactly which game it was but it comes up in different varieties but vaguely there's this one like cabinet makers game or a carpenter's game where like they were carpenters and then they were making like three different kind of cabinets and then they were working at different times of the day also and so you had to split by those three subgroups and then when it came to the open-ended questions when you had to split by three subgroups it became very confusing and there were like a lot of could be possibilities that presented themselves so this yeah. kind of ties into the go ahead because there's
2: a second part but sure sure starting with that one i think what tends to happen there is if there are a lot of subgroups you can at least solve for one of those groups so the example i would point to is there's this game where it's like you have four dogs that place first second third fourth with like ribbons and then two dogs that didn't win ribbons and the dogs are either they have certain names then they're male or female And then they are also a Greyhound or Labrador. So that ostensibly is just a mess, right? You have, oh, it's an in-out. There's a sequencing element. Oh, and it also takes place on three layers. But the nice thing is you can actually solve for like two of the rows. Like you can basically figure out, oh, all the dogs that are in are female except for one. Or like, these three dogs and the four have to be in. These have to be Labradors. So more groups is more complicated. But it also means sometimes you can solve for an entire one of those rows or one of those groups. But I think the principles of splitting still are the same. That If you're able to determine, oh, okay, the first and second spots have to be this and this or that and that. I'll just split it along those lines and leave the other the other rows maybe a little bit less complete. But I would say that games are meant to be solved. They're, if they make it more complicated with more groups, you'll be able to solve a lot of the groups, a lot within the groups.
3: Okay. So you suggest like approaching it like group by group?
2: I think you can split along some of the gr- like dimensions that are just within a group, for example. Yeah.
3: Okay. And then mm-hmm. one type of question type I've noticed consistently I've been getting wrong is that when they ask for us to like find the piece that completely sets up the game board. Yeah. It's usually a sequencing game that they do it, but they also do it yep. in grouping. I mean I sh- struggle in the grouping games more when it comes to hmm. this question, but yes.
2: I think it's two parts. The one part of it inevitably is just you might have to brute force it. You might have to try the different pieces and see does everything fall into place. But I would also ask yourself what pieces are super restrictive. Which pieces relate to other rules and trigger a bunch of stuff. One thing I also noticed with those questions, a lot of the time if there's a floater, the floater is the piece that's going to mess everything up because nothing affects the floater. Oftentimes, the solution for those types of questions will be placing the floater in a very restrictive location. So A, you get rid of the floater, and B, it affects other pieces putting them in place. But yeah, I would ask yourself what pieces go into strategic significant locations and which pieces maybe affect other pieces a lot. And the floater trick tends to help a lot there too.
1: Now, something else I've noticed on a lot of those questions is that th- those are questions that tend to become very easy if you've done your if you've done your setup and you've done your splits correctly. Often those can be a check on hey did you split the board enough? Because you, you you'll find that if you've if you've split the board the number of times the test writers assume that you would, you realize looking at it is like oh well I can yeah if I put it put it here then it, it results in this solved board that I have here at the top left of my piece of paper. This is already done for me. So often you'll save yourself from having to brute force those sorts of questions if you've kind of done a good job of splitting going into them.
3: Okay, great. Thank you, guys.
1: Yeah. Okay, Demiris?
3: Yes, thank you. So I had a question about hitting like a plateau on the logic games. I've been, I've done all the core curriculum for the logic games and now I've kind of just, I just continuously keep getting the same number correct. And I was wondering if you had maybe any tips to get over that plateau.
4: Yeah,
2: I think that if, assuming you're you're foolproofing the core curriculum games, if not, definitely do that. Assuming you've really mastered the core curriculum games, I think a lot of it is just exposure to more questions, to be honest. That logic games is one of the few areas where it's fairly linear. The more questions you do, the better you would get. But I would say to do the core curriculum games, you foolproof them. And I mean, you master all 35 of those PTs worth, or sorry, 16 to 35 worth of pts worth of games and then after that you do 1 through 16 and then after that you start rotating in games for the pts you're doing that i would say really it's just patience realizing that if you foolproof everything and i mean honestly foolproof it master the games be able to do it a week later with no mistakes you will get better at it and that's really just trusting the process
1: yeah, the thing I'll add to that as well is don't just focus on high accuracy, focus on speed as well. So make sure that you're not only able to to tackle these games, get all the questions right, but that you're able to do so really efficiently and to do it under time, that you're using the strategies that help you do it quickly. Because often that's the the kind of cause of those long-lasting long, long lasting plateaus, especially if you're on that kind of higher end of the score range. Uh, chances are that given unlimited time, you could tackle any game and you could get it probably 100% right. The question is, you know, have you found the really efficient strategies that let you do it quickly as well as do it well? Thank you. Of course. All right. Kitty and Amanda and then Mylene, who has been incredibly patient and we definitely want to let her get her question.
5: Hi, I have a question in regards to the conditional logic in grouping games. Sometimes they say when A and then B. In that case, because it's conditional, when you split the game boards, would you try to negate necessary and then you do the contrapositive and if not B, then not A? Would you do that on the board or would you do if not A and then the rule falls away? I feel like there's okay. more ways of splitting, and I'm not sure in general like
2: what we should do. Yeah, so Scott, you will have to back me up on this because I am a very visual person. So when <laughs> I hear that, my just I, this is, that's not your fault, by the way, Kitty. But when you when you say that for me, that just I have a hard time processing that. But if I'm understanding correctly, I think the way you generally would split it would be two worlds. One is let's say let's say it said if A is first, B is second. I would probably split one of those as put in A and then put b second and then i would contrapose it and then do a world in which i decide b is not second therefore a is not first and i think that often this is that's not a particularly useful split here because you didn't push out any inferences in that second board where i think this is more useful is actually in sequencing games so if it said to you for example a comes before b which comes before C. Well, then I do one world where it's ABC, and then one where I contrapose back down that chain where C, B, A. Scott, does that make, back me up, make sure that's coherent? Because I am very bit, yeah.
1: It is, though. The one thing I will say is that it is typically a very unusual game if I am splitting off of a conditional rule like that. So the thing I would advise you if, if you, if you find yourself doing that, ask yourself, is there really no other rule in this game that would be a better candidate for split? That gives me a much cleaner, well, this, thing, this piece has to be in this spot or this spot, or this spot can only be occupied by one of these two pieces. So anytime where it's just kind of that raw conditional, that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in me that I've found the best rule to split. So that's probably the point where I would look back at the game and say, hey, is there an inference here that i missed? Is there something that's more restrictive than this conditional rule that I could use to split the board? Gotcha. May
5: I use a specific example in a question to further explain what I meant?
1: <laughs> you can, but bear in mind we're over time and we're probably not going to be able to, to pull up a specific question. But Raphael might, might be encyclopedic enough in his knowledge that he'll just remember it off the top of his head. So let's give it a try.
2: We can we can try. If if not, you can email me the question. I don't have to take a look.
5: Thank you. So they're like, remember the dorms questions? It's like five dorms on one side on the west wing, five dorms on the east wing. Yeah. And then they're saying, like, if the male is on on like a on the third one on the west wing, Mm -hmm. and then what happens? Like in that case, I'm not sure if that's a grouping game or a sequencing game, but would you try to negate? sufficient to make the rule fall away or would you actually negate necessary and then do a contrapositive and then like if
2: not b not a if memory serves for that game i think i actually did do the contrapositive thing but that one is special because there are very few places where it's actually a very restrictive game that you can actually split that along like, i forget exactly which spot but it's like one of the pieces you split it and then it blocks out because there's like a limited number of, you can't do like male, male, back to back or something. That if you split it along one of those, it makes it very restrictive. And then you can just split it one time further, sort of putting the male pieces because there are fewer male dormitories than female ones. For, I think this is PT 36. So if you, so if you can, people can reference that I think it's 36. Don't quote me on it. But I, th- that's how I split it. So in that case, I actually did do that conditional trick that I was talking about. Yeah. But I, I, I don't have it in front of me, so I could be off a little bit. But yes, I think you're right. Gotcha. Thank you so All much, right.
1: Amanda. And then we'll we'll finally get to Mylene. Actually, Amanda, did you drop off of here? Okay, there you are.
5: Hi, can you hear me? We can. It seems as if what you guys initially talked about with the woman before was what I was going to ask. The only other question I guess I do have is if you're going to create another webinar for logical reasoning or reading comp.
1: Almost certainly. Yeah. So we just did, we did a reading comp, a webinar last month. You can find it on the forums or reach out to me by, or Raphael by email. and We'd be happy to send you the the video for that. And I'm guessing that sometime either next month or the following month, we'll probably follow this up by doing a logical reasoning one because they seem, it seems to be a popular trend for us to do.
3: All right. Great.
1: All right. Take care. All right. Last but not least, Mylene, I'm going to click a, a lot of talk. It's going to make you a panelist. So if you don't want your face to be seen, go ahead and mute your video.
5: Well, thank you for letting me join. And thanks for the presentation, you guys. So really briefly, I think you mentioned that it's like kind of a time waste to do a lot of untimed sections, but I'm just from my perspective, is it a necessary evil to do a lot of untimed practice sections if that's how you learn and really master the games? I'm doing a lot of untimed sections. I am picking up bad habits, but the trade-off is I am I feel like I'm learning and not just feel like. My results have been consistently upwards, so I don't know how to mitigate picking up those bad habits while also mastering maximizing my understanding of the games through untimed practice.
2: Yeah, I think untimed practice is fine, but it needs to be through the blind review process sequenced after you do the game time. So I have no I think it's it's great that you're doing untimed, but I would make sure that your first pass at the game is timed. That doing that ensures that you're not in a situation where you're sort of using untimed as a crutch and your first pass through, you're taking really long algorithmic ways to do rules. You want to make sure that your first your first pass through it is time so that you can start to see the shortcuts, the ways to make rule, make inferences pretty quickly. And then you can take the more long approach to it afterwards on time. So my answer is yes, but sequence it with doing time first.
3: I see that. So like a balance.
4: All right. Thank you very much, too.
1: Oh, our pleasure. And Jacob, you're the last hand up. So you'll be the last question for tonight. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? We can. Perfect. So
4: I guess my
0: question is, is there such a thing as too many splits? Because like sometimes I'll look at like my rules and I'll be like, immediately I can split this six ways but there's a lot of variables and by the time I end up drawing them all into each of my split boards I end up being over my target time anyway even though it does sort of pay off down the road a little bit for the questions so I guess like is there ever a situation where even though you could split it a certain number of ways if there's like a lot of variables or you would have to split it a lot of times do you just decide to go straight into the questions and do your sub game boards there like what what
2: should the judgment be in those sort of situations? Yeah, there's no hard and fast rule. The closest proxy I would give is you shouldn't split. So that if you're going to split in a way there are more boards than number of questions, that's probably too much. That's a decent enough proxy. Don't split so there are more boards than number of questions. But short of that, I think that generally it's just you have to just call it as you see it. If naturally the way that it breaks down and you're going to exhaust all possibilities six boards, that's perfect. If splitting it into two boards doesn't push out any inferences, maybe two is too many. Then it really is just going to be case by
1: case. Something I'll say just as a general rule of thumb, though, is that if I see an opportunity to push to two boards, it's almost always worth doing. And it's the very exceptionally rare game where it's worth pushing past four boards. There are some, but there, I mean, I can could, I could think of probably a single digit number of games across all the PTs that I've done where, yeah, I really had to make five or six boards in order to efficiently tackle the game. Generally speaking, two, three or four possible worlds are are enough to to see the inferences that that the LSAT writers are expecting you to make assuming that you made the right splits.
4: That makes sense. Thank you.
1: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming tonight, for sticking around all the way to the bitter end. Again, we'll be sending an email out to all of you with a video of all of this, as well as the links that we sent you earlier. Thank you so much. We'll be having another one of these next month, likely on logical reasoning or on some similar topic. Good luck on the LSAT. Please reach out if you need any help with it and have a wonderful night. Take care. Hey, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. And I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you are thinking about working with a tutor, get in touch. We'll do a free consultation. You can reach us on sevensage.com. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.